My name is Jeff Leo. I'm the pastor of missional outreach here at Lake Avenue Church. And here at Lake Avenue Church, it is our custom to remain standing for the reading of God's Word, which comes to us this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 22 to 32. This is what the Word of God says. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that, his fellow, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It is my privilege to bring to us the word of God to explain and apply it, as is the task of every preacher. And um, there are some questions that arise from this text when people read it, that whenever I've read it with people, this one in Matthew and its parallel passage in the book of Mark, folks have always kind of desperately and urgently asked questions along at least two of the themes that we find here. One of them is the presence of evil supernatural forces that can overtake and oppress a person so that they can't even see nor speak. Demonic possession and oppression are these complex, otherworldly topics that we don't get to address from the pulpit very much. The other one that I find that uh, students of the Bible ask about frequently happens at the end of the passage, where it mentions the sin that cannot be forgiven, for which there is no redemption. We call it the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. And students of the Bible tremble as they ask whether or not they have committed this sin beyond which there is no hope. Well, if these are some of the questions that occur to you or the concerns that you have as this text is read, you're not alone. There are plenty of people before you and after you who have asked and will ask these questions. But as a preacher of the Word of God, my task this morning is to explain to us what Matthew has written, the message he intends to communicate, inspired as he was by the Spirit of God, to send us a message from many, many years ago. And the message this morning is actually quite simple. I believe it's simply this, that the people of God 
Really, the people of God, they love when God is at work. If you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, to belong to the family, the body of Christ, the family of God, then you love when God is at work. And I've seen that in this congregation too. But Matthew communicates this to us in three ways, in a really intense passage that's not always very nice, not always very pretty. But let me put it to us this way in three sort of positive statements. First, in verses 22 through 24, God's people will recognize Jesus' work because of the pattern of the teaching of Scripture. In verses 25 through 29, God's people rejoice when God's kingdom is breaking, sometimes forcefully, into this world. And then in verses 30 through 32, God's people revere the Spirit's surprising work throughout all the world. And you see how we're going verse by verse. So I want to make sure you have the opportunity to take out the Pew Bible and keep your finger on page 1232. I'm going to keep directing your attention there because I want you to know, especially this morning, because I have some hard things to say because the Scripture demands it, I want you to know that what I'm saying comes directly from here and not from my agenda or my preferences or my own mind. So... Hold me to this. It is our standard together as a family. Well, let's go to what the text says here in verses 22 through 24 at the beginning of our passage. I believe that Matthew is teaching us that God's people will recognize Jesus' work because of the pattern of the teaching of Scripture. So this passage could say a lot of things, but because of the pattern of the teaching of Scripture, it says certain other things. For example, in verse 22, we have a very short story with no details. All it says is that, that there was a man oppressed by demons and that Jesus healed him so that he could now talk and see. Because really, that's all it takes is just a few words from Jesus to make it happen. There are many other ways to do this in the, in the New Testament. If you look at some of the cultural commentaries, you see that there's lots of words that are expended, rituals in order to cast demons out, but not for Jesus. He only needs one short verse to explain what happens. So that indicates to us that Matthew is not here teaching us about the doctrine of evil forces in the spiritual realms. He spends the rest of his words talking about something much different. So we want to pay attention to what Matthew is really concerned about. So we get to verse 23, where the people are astonished, and they say out loud, could this be the son of David, the son of David, a key phrase in the gospel of Matthew, because Matthew was trying to convince people, especially with Jewish religious background, that it's this Jesus who was promised to us in the Old Testament. You see that in the beginning of the book of Matthew, a genealogy that demonstrates that the birth of Jesus is in the kingly line of David. And so as the people begin to wonder about the identity of this miracle worker, Matthew records, could this be the son of David? They recognize him from somewhere because of the work that he did. Now remember, in verse 22, what was the work that he did? 
He delivered someone. He liberated him from oppression by demons so that he could now see and speak. This is found in the pattern of the teaching of Scripture. So I have for us a slide that has the words of Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. And I want you to take a look at it with me. I'll read it to you. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Where would the people have recognized the work of Jesus from? Well, it would only be if they recognized the pattern of the teaching of Scripture. And so they recognized that this one could be the promised Messiah, the one that Isaiah promised to us, that someone is coming and he will deliver his people. It got them excited. But his detractors wanted to talk about a different, sinister lineage. In verse 24, they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. In the Old Testament, you had this Baal, this God, this foreign deity. And by the New Testament times, it becomes called Beelzebub, a shorthand for what we call Satan in the world, the Lord of the demons. This wasn't the first time this happened, as a matter of fact. Jesus had cast out demons before. All you have to do is flip back to Matthew chapter 9, and you'll see the exact same encounter happening in a different sort of setting. Jesus delivers a person from the oppression of demons, and the Pharisees accuse him of casting out demons by Satan's power. But you know the consequence of sorcery and magic that the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of. The consequence in the Old Testament law was death. And so at this point, for whatever reason, Jesus decides, I must answer this accusation. I can't let this stand. And he does so in a pretty serious way. Well, the Pharisees, for some reason, they don't see what the astonished people see. For some reason, they neglect the pattern of teaching in the Scripture, and they overlook what Jesus has just done and who Jesus is. One of the things I've learned from teaching over the many years that I've been teaching, and especially now as I'm teaching classes, um, has been that I need to stop asking students, why are you taking this class? I just, I need to stop doing that. It it became abundantly clear to me uh, this quarter because, you know, I had students answer that question in an online forum, and the students were very kind. They were very gracious. They said, well, uh, This class is required. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to stop asking. I I wanted to call forth a little bit more than that. I mean, when you're in a classroom full of people who have to be there in order to graduate, it feels one way, which is why I'm so glad for my wife is actually teaching a Bible study class on the book of Amos, especially to focus on the events over the last several weeks and how we as a church, we as the people of God ought to respond to them. She's focusing on the book of Amos. And when she put out the call to say, who is it that would want to come and hear what the Lord has to say to soak in the Scripture so that we can be shaped by the pattern of the teaching of Scripture? A different kind of class assembled. It feels so different to be in a room full of people who want to know what God has said. No certificate, 
no degree, no grades, just shaping and formation by the teaching of the Word of God. The conversation is amazing. You see, here at Lake Avenue Church, we really do believe what our statement of faith says, that God, His work, and His ways are revealed through the Bible truly. And so those who are waiting for Him, are you waiting for Him? Those who are searching the Scriptures to know Him, those who were waiting for Him in the book of Matthew, they began to recognize this Jesus. They began to recognize him because they identified that there was a pattern to his work that he accomplished with great power. And our response really ought to be the same as theirs because we find, and I'll put this in a positive way, in verses 25 through 29, God's people rejoice when God's kingdom breaks into the world with power. Well, let's look at verses 25 through 29 together. You see, Jesus knows what the Pharisees were thinking, it says. And it's not good. It's a pretty ugly picture. So Jesus begins to interrogate the Pharisees. In verses 25 through 29, which we know we can treat as a section because we have these three question marks, which gives us this sense that, God, that Jesus is doing something in this passage, in, the, in this section. In 25 and 26, it says this. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Jesus says in these short verses, Pharisees, your accusation, it makes no sense. Do you see what happened to this brother who was liberated from the oppression of demons, he can now see and speak. What do you think happened there, Pharisees? Did Satan kick himself out? Pharisees, it makes no sense what you're saying. And then in verses 27 through 28, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? Pharisees, your accusation is hypocritical. Your, your disciples are doing the same thing. You see me doing it, and you say it's by the power of Satan. Explain to me then how your disciples do it. They have to do a lot more than I do. I can say a word. I don't even have to go through the rigmarole that they have to in order to cast out demons. Which kingdom is at work now? Jesus says. I can almost see him leaning into it with this second question. And so I ask us, brothers and sisters, which kingdom does healing come from? Which kingdom does freedom come from? Which kingdom does restoration to meaningful participation in the life of a community that loves God, where does that restoration come from? It comes from the kingdom of God, Jesus says. There's one source. It's the kingdom of God. And then the last question, Jesus brings it home in verse 29. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? So basically, Jesus is calling himself a thief. But I suppose he can do that. He's Jesus. 
But what he says here is it doesn't work unless you tie up the strong man. Let me explain to you, Pharisees, what just happened here. I have come into the world, Jesus says, and I have the power to bind Satan who roams throughout the world like a lion waiting to devour you. But I am greater than he, and I can bind him and liberate captives from their prison, Jesus says. I can do this because I have the power to bind him. This man was oppressed, and he has been set free. Pharisees, your accusation misses the point. Shouldn't you be rejoicing for this kind of freedom? Shouldn't you be rejoicing? But no, we don't always rejoice. I don't always rejoice. I have some stories about that. But I think some of you know this feeling too. Isn't it frustrating, be honest with yourself, when someone who has spent less time than you, who has thought about an issue less, who has sacrificed personally less than you, isn't it frustrating when they get adoration and acknowledgement and you don't? It's called envy. I have felt it before, and I'd like to tell you about that now. It was the year 2013, and uh, my kids want to, wanted to enter into a costume contest. And uh, my son wanted to be the Red Power Ranger. He was the leader of the Power Rangers. And I thought to myself, oh, son, no, no, no. You can't just put on the muscle suit and the mask and pretend like you're going to win. That's not enough. I've got to do something for you. I'm going to build you something. So my brother was actually living in Los Angeles at the time. He came over to my garage, and we worked together for many nights, probably when I should have been studying. And I think you see it there. I made, okay, let me tell you what I did, because this is really good. I took the bike stroller that we had, you know, the little two-seater that you connect to your bike. I transformed it into what's called a Megazord. Okay, it's called a Megazord, if you didn't know. This is the Red Rangers Lion Megazord from a certain year of the power... Irrelevant. So what happened was I made this out of scraps of cardboard that I found. I found the plans online. I did some complicated math to make sure the dimensions were right. It was epic. <laughs> but it didn't end there. The legs would swing as we rolled along. The people on the street went by like this, and my son was so delighted. He's, he knew everybody was watching him. I put a Bluetooth speaker in its mouth. I borrowed it from my dad, and I, I played a little sound of a lion's roar as we walked by the judge's table. It was amazing. I was so excited. My son was so excited. Do you know what place we got that contest? No place at all. <laughs> None. I couldn't believe it. And I took a look at the winner's circle and one of the folks that won was this young little girl, very, very cute, I have to admit, very cute. But she actually refused to even wear her costume. How did she win over? My son was just strolling with, it was. <sighs> Jesus swoops in, and he wins over a crowd when the Pharisees had been working for generations to deliver their people, to promote holiness in their land, that God would return them and restore their land. They would pray, 
They would cast out demons. It's only natural for the Pharisees to be a little bit jealous of Jesus swooping in this way. But I don't think that jealousy itself goes far enough to explain what was going on with the Pharisees. I don't think it captures it. I, I rather, I think the Pharisees were missing something. That the kingdom of God was coming with power right before their eyes. A man had been set free. And brothers and sisters, you've heard these reports too. People are being set free from literal oppression. A group like the International Justice Mission, which frees slaves, modern-day slaves, from human trafficking and from the sex industry, and protects millions by promoting legislative and judicial reform around the world. People are literally being set free. Do you rejoice for that? Of course. It's groups like these that demonstrate that they have heard and understood the pattern of the teaching of Scripture like that which we find in Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9, which says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Here at Lake Avenue Church, our international staff, that's what we call them, you might know them as missionaries. The, the missionaries we support are seeing people set free from slavery to sin and turning to Jesus. And we rejoice for their reports as we get them. Perhaps we don't, often, perhaps we don't share them often enough with you because they are exciting. You will get to see, you have the opportunity to see people delivered as Wow Jam gets to roll out in front of City Hall very, very soon. Our congregation members who engage in prison ministry, they get to see up close freedom in an unlikely place. And I believe that our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been released early from prison because of recent legislation are meant to experience the completion of their freedom that is supposed to be found in the welcoming embrace of a congregation full of brothers and sisters who have also been set free by the Lord Jesus Christ. We welcome them here. These are some of the obvious ones to us. And I would say that if this stuff doesn't get your heart rejoicing, then there's something deeply wrong with this congregation, but I, I know that's not true of us because every time we do these baptisms, you rejoice with gladsome hearts, and that makes me to rejoice as well. But these are the easy ones, and it has not always been so straightforward, not even for the people of God. So when we look at verses 30 through 32, we see Matthew teaching us that God's people are to revere the Spirit's surprising Work. Sometimes it's a surprise to us as the Spirit works in the world. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In saying so, he draws a bright line distinction, a line in the sand. There's no middle ground here, which is a problem for me because I love middle ground. 
I want to negotiate. I want to have some space to disagree so that we can all be in, right? We can disagree and still belong to the same body. It doesn't always look very pretty, but I love that middle ground. It's just that in the case of this text, on this particular issue of whose kingdom is it, Jesus, according to Matthew, leaves zero middle ground. It must be supremely demanding. So that in verse 31 and 32, we have this difficult phrase, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is where we refer to that unpardonable, unforgivable sin, and many people wonder, is it I, Lord, have I done this? What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Based on the things that I've already described to you and based on what it says here in the book of Matthew, it seems clear to me that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is giving credit to Satan for the liberating work that the Spirit does. It seems far off, doesn't it? Giving credit to Satan for the liberating work that the Spirit does. On the one hand, I want to relieve many of you who are worried about yourselves. But on the other hand, I want to describe faithfully for us what this means and what this looks like. The early church teetered on the brink regarding this one. In Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council had to answer the question, is it even possible for God to be at work among the Gentiles? Paul had to give his report, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've suffered for it. Yes, God is at work among the Gentiles. It doesn't look the way that you thought it would. Peter has to stand up in the midst of them all and say, brothers, it seems pleasing to us and to the Holy Spirit that we welcome them into fellowship even though it doesn't look the way we thought it would. The early church teetered on the brink of this one, willing to say, no, that couldn't be the work of the Spirit. But these missionaries had to say, we saw it with our own eyes. They spoke in tongues too. The earth shook. The wind blew. The same things you encountered at Pentecost we have seen in our travels. Yes, God can work among the Gentiles. Jonah, despite what the children's books make him out to be, was a colossal failure on this one. He said with resoluteness, there is no way God should be working among the Ninevites. In fact, he was so committed to his anti-Ninevite ideology, he was willing to die for it. Die in the desert with no shade and no provisions. He was so committed, so sincere. And these are just two of many biblical examples that ask us, this congregation, the same question about the limitations of our imagination. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, is it not God who is the one who is truly free to do as God pleases. Isn't he the one that's free? Didn't Paul write that the gospel is not in chains, even if he was? 
Well, let's do this. I want you to go ahead and picture a person or a group of people for our application time. Picture a, a person or a group of people that you are frustrated with today. If you have no one, good for you. I do. <laughs> Picture a person or group of people that you're frustrated with, and I'm preaching to myself now. And I want to ask us a set of questions. Jesus interrogates his audience, and because this passage is in that mode, I dare not make it light and easy for us. I believe I'm duty-bound to interrogate myself and us as well. Let me ask you three questions of my own. The first one is easy. You have that face for those people in mind. First question is this. Can God reach them? Of course. I told you it was an easy question. Yes, God can reach them. But let me ask you a second, I believe, more difficult question. When God reaches them and brings them into his family, in your imagination, do you expect that they will now be more like you? Do you expect that they will now be more like you? What about their language? Do they have to speak the same as you? Use the same lingo as you? Or can it be like it was in the book of Acts chapter 2, where the message of God's love, where the gospel came to people in their own language so that they could immediately understand it in their heart, with their idioms and their ways of speaking and the shades of meaning? Can't it be that way? Let me start meddling now. What about our musical choices? Especially on Sunday morning. Here at Lake Avenue Church, we receive a lot of your feedback for which we are mostly grateful. <laughs> the harshest criticism that we receive as pastors and as directors of uh, worship in this church, they dismay us. Can't it be more like Acts chapter 10 where Peter sitting atop Simon the Tanner's house, dreams of God lowering a sheet full of unclean animals and God saying, rise up and eat. Peter says, no, I would never do such a thing. That's unclean. It happens three times so that Peter recognizes, just like he did before when he had betrayed Jesus, he was trying to be taught a lesson. So Peter is able to say, I get it, God. I get it. What God has said is clean. Let no one call unclean. Can't it be more like that? When God reaches people who are different from us, can't they have a different value system than us, even a little bit? Now, I'm the last person who wants to walk around and simply baptize everything with holy water and say, it's fine, there's no problem here. You can't agree with everything, there are limits to our common ground. Limits to all of these things. Just as there were still three central prohibitions in the book of Acts chapter 15, you must abstain from this in order to demonstrate that you're not idol worshipers, the Jerusalem council decided. That's how it worked for them. You can't affirm everything, but there was a welcome into fellowship of people with very different values. Well, let me ask my third question. I believe that this one might be the hardest. It's this. Have you missed 
God's work among people for whom God cares, because you feel that they should be condemned, have you missed God's work among people for whom he cares because you feel they should be condemned? Let me just talk about what that looks like a little bit. I think that sometimes there's this fight or flight response. It's one or the other. That's how we respond to difference when we clash with someone. I'm a fleer. I fly. I try to hide. I know this in my own life. When I have dismissed someone, I don't feel like talking to them anymore. When we flee, there is private condemnation. When we flee, we withdraw from the ministries and the relationships that have been set before us. And then there's others. There's some who fight. They become aggressive, ungracious, unfair, unkind. They fail to listen. I have seen more name-calling these last two weeks than I have in a long time. And the problem is not simply out there somewhere. Brothers and sisters, I tremble to say this before you. One of the forms that this takes is indifference to others' pain. Consider the words we sang this morning. You are important to me. I need you to survive. When other people or other communities are in pain, doesn't our self-protective indifference quietly condemn people to suffer alone? Doesn't our self-protective indifference condemn people to suffer alone? So when you have heard from the pulpit over and over again with Pastor Jeff Madison or Pastor Greg Waybright that we are to call each other for a meeting, we really mean it. I know that sometimes I have to send an email that says, hey, can we get together? I want to make sure I heard you right. Let me repeat that. Hey, can we get together? I want to make sure I heard you right. We really do intend for you to walk out of the church this morning and maybe send that email for the sake of the kingdom of God so that you would see God at work in what, something, uh, what someone else is doing or thinking or saying. You can't agree with everything, but you can seek what God is doing in that place. When you do it, when you do it, you enter into someone else's world or another group of people's world. John Perkins, who is the founder of the uh, Christian Community Development Association, has a principle that he calls relocation. If you really want to hear the cries of a community and make a difference really there for them, their children, and for the world, you've got to enter into another space. He calls it relocation. Are you willing to relocate in order to see what God's work is? Sometimes we are drawn because we hear God is doing something and our hearts gravitate over in that direction. But it's the times when we hear nothing or we even think that you are not important to me, I don't need you to survive, when we need to pay the most attention to the work of God in someone else's midst. I want to illustrate to you what that's been like for me. 
I was given a gift by a missionary and professor who was working in Peru. There's a community in a city called Pamplona Alta in Peru, up in the mountains. It is what is called a Pueblo Nuevo, a new city, populated by migrants who have fled there under the threat of terrorism and economic privation from poverty. A new city popping up really fast because people are fleeing to this place now called Pamplona Alta. And a group of women in that impoverished place were asked to imagine what heaven would be like. I want to show you a gift that I received, but before I do that, I want to throw this image on the screen so that you get a feel for the community in which they live. All the houses there are made of mud, and they are reinforced as each family can afford the next brick. So because they're made of mud, you get a feel for uh, what color the city is. So when these women were asked, what does heaven look like? They produced these squares of fabric that hopefully our camera operators can get a tight shot of this square of fabric. And one of the first things that stuck out to me was the colors that these women could imagine because of what God was doing within them despite their conditions. This is a frequent lesson that missionaries learn, that God is at work because people can yet respond to him. This one was made by a woman named Emma who shares our daughter's name. So I'm glad to have it as a gift to remind me that what it means to enter into someone else's world, to see God at work there, it's not to pity them. It's not to rescue them because only Jesus Christ is our Savior, but rather to be with them, to work for them, to march with them, to cry out for justice alongside them. That's what it means to enter into another world with them. And when you do, brothers and sisters, when you do, look for God's work because the people of God love when God is at work. When you see God at work there, you will rejoice. You will recognize the work of Jesus. You will revere the work of the Spirit because he has surprised you. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? All-powerful, almighty God, who is everywhere present and who alone is wise, we lean on the presence and power and transformation of your Holy Spirit this morning, without whom we have not the will nor the skill to enter into another world for the sake of the gospel. Lord, it's our workplaces, it's our neighborhoods, it's our cities that need the touch of the gospel. It's even people here this morning looking for this liberating Jesus who sets people free. Lord, your love knows no bounds. You reach out to us. And this morning, 
we desire that you lift our hearts to rejoice with you, that we would not speak words to each other that harm each other, Lord, but that we cross over into each other's lives for the sake of the kingdom of God and the glory of God, in whose name we now pray. Amen.